Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Nearly 200 Georgia State Prison employees have been arrested for job-related crimes since the beginning of 2020, according to a list obtained by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Of the 195 Georgia Department of Corrections employees arrested through June 30th, 143 are state-certified police officers, mostly correction officers. That includes 69 arrested related to drugs. Most appear to be prison employees who brought drugs into prison, often to provide to inmates. The drug arrests include 41 for marijuana, 11 for marijuana and methamphetamine, and 9 for meth alone. In one case, two employees tried to smuggle meth inside a prison in a hot pocket frozen turnover. There were 21 arrests for battery, including four employees arrested at Rutledge State Prison in Columbus for beating a handcuffed prisoner. Nine employees were arrested for sexual assault, including four assaults of prisoners at Lee Arendelle State Prison in Alto, Georgia's largest women's prison. Alabama's execution of Joe Nathan James Jr. last month may have taken longer than any other lethal injection in recorded American history. An examination by Reprieve U.S. of James's execution estimates that it took Alabama officials between three and three and a half hours to carry out the lethal injection, a duration that the organization argues violates constitutional protections against inhumane punishments. Quote, subjecting a prisoner to three hours of pain and suffering is a definition of cruel and unusual punishment, the director of Reprieve U.S., Maya Foa, said in a statement on Sunday. Quote, states cannot continue to pretend the abhorrent practice of lethal injection is in any way humane. James was convicted of murder and sentenced to die in the 1994 killing of 26-year-old Faith Hall. The daughters of Hall wanted James to spend the rest of his life imprisoned, but pleaded for him not to be executed. Nonetheless, Alabama officials pumped lethal injection into James the night of July 28th as his punishment for Hall's murder. James was supposed to be put to death at 6 p.m. that night, but it wasn't until about 9 p.m. that media witnesses were allowed to enter the execution chamber. Then, it wasn't until 9.27 p.m. that officials pronounced him dead. State officials insisted in a statement that there was nothing out of the ordinary, despite facing questions about the lengthy delay. Later, they modified their statement to say James's executioners had experienced trouble establishing the intravenous lines carrying the lethal drugs. Citing evidence from James's autopsy, Reprieve U.S. maintains that it is clear the lethal injection began long before the media witnesses were admitted into the execution chamber. The organization said James's execution team unsuccessfully tried for three hours or more to insert an IV line before attempting a cut-down procedure that may have caused James to struggle, leaving him with injuries on his hands and wrists. Officials then reportedly sedated James, which may have explained why he never opened his eyes or moved while on the gurney after the media witnesses were admitted into the execution chamber. He also never spoke when asked if he had any last words. 
Mississippi is now the world's leader in putting people behind bars. More inmates per capita than any state or nation, according to the World Population Review. Quote, Is there a political price to be paid for foolishly sticking with a failed system that's made us the world capital of mass incarceration? Asked Cliff Johnson, director of the MacArthur Justice Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. What's it going to take for Mississippians to realize that the mass incarceration we have carried out for decades has made us less safe rather than safer? Across the U.S., the number of those in prison in the U.S. is 16% lower today than before the pandemic, according to the Vera Institute of Justice. But Mississippi's rate is skyrocketing, rising more than 1,500 in less than six months. That population now exceeds 18,000, the highest rate since April 2020. This week, Zolo Azania returns to the show. Azania was on Kite Line back in 2019, shortly after he was released after serving decades on Indiana's death row. He now speaks with Jacques Huerta, who's been on the show previously, moderating discussions with various Indiana prisoners. Zolo will be on upcoming episodes of the show, but today he talks about what it was like growing up during his time. He also speaks to how he was radicalized in prison and what it was like to fight against, as he calls it, the vicious cycle that generations get caught up in. We'd like to give a content warning for a brief mention of sexual assault. First of all, my name is Justin Cuerta, but everybody calls me Jock, and I'll be moderating. I've also been incarcerated before. I've done a, a all together on the on the on the life investment policy that they do. I've got 14, 14 years in, off and on. You know, three here, two there, four there, you know, but it all adds up and you miss every day, <laughs> you know. But, um, you know, so I have my own stories and, you know, there are things that come with that, you know. So we're going to engage in that a little bit deeper today. And we're going to talk to Mr. Zolo Azania. Um, he has a very unique story, a very unique set of circumstances. You know, he's one of the few people to actually go through a lot of things that he went through firsthand and still be very blessed and fortunate to be sitting right here at this table today, you know. So um, and he's learned a lot along the way. And and we're going to go over uh, a few of those things, you know. So um, I'm real excited. How you feel, Mr. Zola? I feel pretty good. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. Yes. Okay. And, and the people that, that are here is saying a lot about yourself. Definitely. This is uh, a highly serious matter, and it's a lot of, it's a lot of uh, responsibility on you, whether you know it or not. Uh, what should I start? What should I start? Well, we're gonna, if you're ready to dig in, uh, I really wanted to let the people know, uh, get a little bit, know a little bit about who you are, or, or actually where you're from, and uh, your upbringing you know, that led you behind bars. Okay. That's, we can speak a little bit about that. That's easy to do. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I was born in uh, Sykeston, Missouri. Yeah, my parents was from uh, the deep Midwest, what we call the deep Midwest uh, in Missouri. Uh, that was the uh, 
the, the borderline between uh, the East and the West, uh, when, when slavery wanted, they wanted when certain people segments of, of the uh, country wanted to extend slavery to to the West, they had to go through Missouri, mm -hmm. and uh, that's where I was from. And, and this uh, it was uh, a Confederate town where where I was living. I, I learned this when I uh, became a little older, and the town itself was called New Madrid or New Madrid. And uh, earthquake hit there in the late 1800s, which changed the course of the Mississippi River, and it it uh, it un inundated the the old, the old town. So uh, the new town they rebuilt it was called New Madrid. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents uh, lived on a small farm, we, and they moved us to Gary, Indiana, in the early 50s. I say around about maybe 1957, maybe. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, that's why I was reared. I was reared in, in the city of Gary, and uh, just like most people, you know, migrating from the south, uh, seeking better life on the promised land, because mm -hmm. the, the, the north was uh, propagated as a better way of life, to get away from your, the oppression and uh, poverty of living on a subsistence, living a subsistence existence. How old were you when you went to Gary? I was a little over two years old. Over two years old. Yeah, a little over so two years old. Time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was, I was still, still like you know, but uh, what kind of conditions? Well, I, re I really didn't know what the conditions were at that time. I thought yeah, everybody right. lived the same way. Right. But uh, I was, when I speak about the conditions, at a certain period of time, sometimes I'd be speaking from hindsight, which hindsight is always twenty twenty. It's more clear when you look back on it. Well, uh, my father finally got a job in the steel mill like most people from the South coming up uh, up North. And uh, he was making a little more money, so we, we moved into uh, a better home, better house. Mm -hmm. And But my father passed away at an early age. He was 31 years old, which mm -hmm. I thought he was an old man. But uh, mm -hmm. he died, and I, I was suspicious because my father, uh, would, like most children, would, would know what their parents, how they made a living, how they worked, what, what kind of work they did. But my father would always tell me not to play with his 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 work boots. That was the only thing I couldn't touch. You know, you know. One day I was gonna put him put him on to impress him. You know, mess. You know, cause he showed me a lot of attention. He screamed at me, "Oh, don't mess! Don't you ever touch them boots?" He said, "That red dust one, that's poison." Well, years later, uh, it, uh, coke plant had to shut down because it, it had high cases of. Um, Heart disease, cancer, wow. uh, lung disease, kidney disease, things of that nature. So the coke plant had to shut down. Coke is where coal is pre-burned. Mm -hmm. It's pre-burned and then it's allowed to extinguish. And it gets real hard. So when you burn it again, it burns at uh, several times hotter than regular coal if you're just burning it. And they called it coke. And that's what they used to melt the iron ore to make the steel. Mm -hmm. So they had to shut the coke plant down, and then uh, they settled a case out of class action lawsuit out of court mm -hmm. in the late '60s, early '70s, somewhere around in there. Mm -hmm. And um, how did that affect? My, your well, well, I always thought that the steel mill killed my father. Right. So I had made a vow to myself that I would never work in the steel mill, and uh, I haven't to this day. Mm -hmm. And so I, I used to talk to my mother about it. My mother said, oh, go on somewhere, boy. I said, I said Mama, the steel mill killed Daddy. So she said, oh, go on, boy. Don't, don't, don't bother me with that. But 
that's actually what happened. So my mother missed out on filing a claim. Right. So, you know, so at the time my father passed away, then we, we, we experienced uh, severe poverty. Wow. And that is when I realized we was poor. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, I didn't even know. We was already poor, but I didn't know. Because we still was able to see, you know, we, we didn't go without eating. Basic needs. But yes, yeah, basic needs were met. When my father passed away, that's when I used to go to bed at night sometimes without no food. So then I started stealing. I would go to the store and I would steal. Or I would visit my friend's house at the time they get ready to eat dinner. Oh, you got to have something to eat? Uh, yes, thank you. I like that something to eat. <laughs> so, you know, so when I came back home, I was full. But my sisters and brothers, who wasn't able to get around like I was able to get around, how old was I? I was, I was nine years old. My father passed away, but I didn't start leaving the house until I was around about. 11, mm-hmm. maybe 11, I'll be, you know, hanging out in the street, I'll be in the streets. Mm-hmm. And on, on, and the, the friends that I would meet, uh, people that we, we befriended one, all of us had the same problems. And, but we didn't know we had the same problems. We just mm-hmm. got along together. Mm-hmm. And um, Were you the oldest? Yes, I was the oldest you in my family. Yes, I was, I was the oldest. Mm-hmm. But I always um, was involved in something constructive. Cause my grandparents and my parents uh, had me had given me instilled in me expectations that I'm gonna be have to be example to my sisters and brothers, and I have to stand up and be responsible for certain things. So my childhood early ended early, even though I didn't have the mental capacity for that type of ma- responsibility maturity. and maturity. But I I uh, did the best I could, mm-hmm. and I ended up continue to have run-ins with the law. You know, I, I was constantly in trouble, some kind of way. And it had something to do with authority. And I was told to uh, respect authority, uh, do, do right, do the right thing, other than me stealing to eat uh, or go in the store and then take an apple <laughs> and take a couple bites out of it, then turn it back upside down. And <laughs> so now I didn't steal it, still there. But I'm walking around the store chewing. <laughs> and, uh, well, uh, I ended up uh, stealing the two dogs because we had started fighting dogs. We wouldn't like pit bulls. Pit bulls was not uh, the the, uh, the most favorite dog back then. Back then, at the time when I was growing up, German shepherds or any dog that had his ears sticking straight up to a point, those were the the, the dogs that were more popular. Mm-hmm. So we would fight those dogs. But I had a way of stealing dogs. A dog can be chained up in the yard. I'm, I'm going to go back. I'll be, I'll be going for the tangent sometimes. So if I go on the tangent, just bring it back. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I go off on the tangent. But I go into a yard, and this dog, ah, ah, ah. and then I'll slowly look around. But while I'm looking around, I'm constantly walking up on the dog. Mm-hmm. So I would get up there, and I would go, and I'd take the chain off of it. Then uh, I would find out that those dogs was not as mean and vicious as we thought they were. They just was like that because they was chained up. But I had a way of doing that because I didn't have any f- real friends to talk to about my problem. Even though I had little friends, we had friends, most of them had two-parent homes. So I could not really, I, ne- I never had a time to grieve because my cousin told me that boys is not supposed to cry. So when we went to the funeral, when my father passed away, I didn't cry. I just sit there trying to hold it in. 
And my cousin looked at me. I had a lot of respect for my cousin. He was a little, almost two years older than me. But I looked up to him. Mm-hmm. So I didn't cry. But that was uh, something in me that I never got over. Mm-hmm. So when I, when, I, young, when, I start, when I start growing up, thinking that that's behind me now, it, it, it didn't go away. Mm-hmm. So what affected me in childhood, I carried into adulthood. Oh, you know, and, and uh, well, anyway, I got put on probation for stealing some dogs. And although... Um, How were you at that point? I was 12. 12. Mm-hmm. Probation tw- at 12. Yes, I was 12. I had probation until I was 18. But my probation officer ended up getting another job as a high school basketball coach. But I was never formally tr- told I was transferred to another mm-hmm. agent. So uh, I just went around throughout the rest of my life till I turned 18. And when I turned 18, I had caught a, a felony case. And that's when I learned that uh, I was still on probation, didn't know it. But being I had turned 18, it was too late by that time. So they couldn't violate me and send me to boys' school because of uh, probation violation. So I, I uh, ended up uh, continuing to get in trouble, involving myself in gangs, which is a little different for me to talk about gangs than what's going on now. We wasn't drug gangs. See, being a drug addict, or being an alcoholic for that matter, was something that was disfavored by the gangs. Mm-hmm. You know, gang members didn't get drunk. You had, you had to be sober to fight. And you didn't use drugs because that was one of the lowest things you can do to yourself. You know, plus I was scared of needles too. Mm-hmm. So, and plus it was not widely uh, accessible. You know, although it was around, it was not, the, the, the people that was involved kept it mm-hmm. from the children. It wasn't all out in the open like mm-hmm. it is now. So you would see things now that's in the open that you wouldn't never see. You know, a child two years old now seeing more than what I seen when I was 18. Right. You know, so they really got it really hard. Mm-hmm. So this is, these are some of the things of, of how I began to get socialized. Okay. Even though it was a dysfunctional socialization, it was something that I always was looking to do the right thing. Even though I was doing wrong, we would uh, help. I saw a, a woman being raped once. once. But we thought that it was somebody had, who invaded our uh, territory in Gary. Mm-hmm. We, we, we don't own nothing. What we claim is our territory. Mm-hmm. But I kept hearing this sound as was a woman's voice. Help me, you know, real low. And we was by a park at night. I had a, I had a gun on me, but everybody didn't have a gun. But I had, I had one in my shirt pocket. I was 22. So we thought that, so we said, let's go that way. So we kind of like followed the voice to find out where is this coming from. So when we went on like a little hill, it was a man on top of a woman. I couldn't really see what he had in his hands, but he had some kind of knife in his hand. So I threw it out on him and said, hey, stop, get up. So when he got up, we trying to find out who he is. Not thinking about the woman. We thinking about who he is and how you, how, where you from. But then this woman was like saying, thank you, thank you, whoever sent you, thank you. And so then I felt something for her. I said, man, you messed with this woman? Don't you mess with me? Oh no, I don't want no trouble. I said, no, you think you're tough. Well, these are, this is some of the things that was affecting me. So I slowly, I didn't, I didn't really become no uh, good Samaritan or uh, somebody who was wanting to do right. That was the experience that I, that I, that I carried with me. I felt good about that. I said, well, I, 
I, mean, I actually felt good that I did something that was positive. Mm -hmm. So uh, I ended up going to jail there. Yeah, it was in 1972. I ended up going to jail December 1972 for a home invasion robbery in which somebody was killed. So I ended up getting a deal for uh, two, an indeterminate sentence of two to 21 years. So while I was in prison, I met uh, some people from the Black Panther Party who had been uh, incarcerated in, uh, in Pendleton. And uh, I used to watch them. How much did you get sentenced to? Two. To 21, 21 years. So you got both sentences. It's not like what it is now. You may get a certain amount of time and you do maybe less than half, but now it's like 80, 85% now. So, but, so at some point, a judge determines how much you do out of that, 2 to 21? No, no, the parole board would determine. The parole board would determine. Yes. Okay. So they, they, they had indeterminate sentences. The theory of the indeterminate sentences was... You determine how much time you do. Right. I, I determine how much time I do by my conduct. Mm -hmm. But they've done away with that system currently, yeah, haven't Yeah, they've done away with yeah. it now. Okay. They did away with it in 1977. But oh, you still okay. had a lot of people who... Serving time. Were serving time, you know. So you had... I was convicted under the 1956 statute, Burns Statute 1956. So mm -hmm. anybody want to look that up, that's the law I was under. In 1974, it was still in effect when I had mm -hmm. pled guilty. The 1970, 56, uh, Bur Indiana Burns statute. So you were serving out this sentence. Mm -hmm. And what actions took place during your time serving? Well, that is, that is when my real transformation began to take place. Okay. Because now I'm in prison and I'm seeing officials who I was told through all my years in going to school and and for my parents, I was supposed to obey. But I was seeing them do things that was wrong. So I would be emotional. I'd say, that's wrong. You're lying to me. You're you lying. You're lying on me. Uh, or if I was a witness for someone and they had received a write-up in prison for whatever the write-up was about. And they would always lie. So i say, he lying. So now I'm getting written up and punished and put on lock and put in a hole for doing that. They were saying I was what they called insolence. Mm -hmm. They even had they even had a, a, a code for silent insolence. Mm -hmm. Like I might look at somebody and roll my eyes, mm -hmm. and now I'm going to the hole. Mm -hmm. What do you hear them going to the hole for? Silent insolence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they even mm -hmm. had a, they even had a, a, a code for reckless eyeballing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not, and, not, uh, not to interrupt you, but going along right along with what you said, I wanted to say that. Uh, because, you know, you were shocked about these lies that these people would blatantly tell, you know. And I remember when I was uh, 19, a long time ago, right? And um, I was at a park that got raided, you know. A lot of guys be selling drugs out there. It got raided. One of the task force officers instigated a fight with a friend of mine, you know. A friend of mine to this day, as a matter of fact. And... Um, he instigated a fight with him and said, you think you're tough. You, this is a cop, police officer, right? And then my buddy said, if you, if you take off that badge and, and that gun, we could do whatever, you know? And he did. And they fought, you know? And then the other cops stopped everything, you know? And, um, 
And then I happened to be in court because I was I got arrested too. I had to go to court. And that officer who instigated that with him, he stood up there and the judge asked the, the officer what happened and he lied blatantly. And I remember, you know, being a kid, not realizing that police lie. <laughs> I actually believe myself that they tell the truth in all situations, you know, like the media and a lot of shows and a lot of different uh, forums try to instill in your head, you know. And I, I sat there in court and I heard him lying. And he said, I asked the gentleman to please not be uh, insolent, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and I was like, wait, he didn't say that. He never <laughs> said that once. And then he attacked me and I had to defend myself. I'm like, man, this dude is telling lie after lie. You know, and we're sitting right there, everybody that it happened to. And but we're voiceless because nobody's going to believe us, you know. And all I wanted to say was it didn't happen like he said it did. So, you know, that that becomes a shock even when you come from these communities and you realize firsthand that, you know, a lot of way that they say the system is structured. You see firsthand that it is not structured that way. Please continue. Yeah, it was really, it was really good. I, ho I hope that. See, another thing too. Uh, I came in contact. I didn't come in contact with lawyers prior to coming in contact with the, you know, law enforcement. But while I was in prison, I met some attorneys from Indianapolis from the Legal Services Organization. And the Legal Services Organizations are the attorneys that was there are, are who I would begin to learn from, and they took interest in the prisoners' cases. And those attorneys were fresh out of law school. And the, the, the attorneys, that, at the time, they was, uh, I was 19. I was 19 by then. But the attorneys was like 21, 22 years old. And um, to me, that was old. But those were the people who were helping us to bring about these changes. <laughs> so I did a lot of time in prison. I did over 42 years altogether. Altogether about 42 years mm -hmm. and I've seen a lot mm -hmm. and I've also a lot some of my friends I met in prison I, I've, I've seen their their sons I've seen their brothers I've seen their uh, grandsons mm -hmm. their nephews you know mm -hmm. oh I know your father I know your uncle I remember him from right. so generation after you know, generation I was seeing it's a, it's a cycle it was a cycle Stay tuned for more episodes with Zolo soon. This conversation is part of a series put on by IDOC Watch and other organizations, including Focus Initiatives. We encourage you to check out their projects, which focus on inside-outside prisoner and re-entry support. We'll have links to our previous episodes with Zolo on our website. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org.
After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.